Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. With your host, Dapper Data. What's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? You are listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion with your host, Dapper Data, as usual. So uh, the past podcast, if you've been listening, right, if you have been listening to each one of the podcasts that I've done probably for the past six months or so, I have not had um, a person I'm actually interviewing on the podcast. And I've just been talking and rambling and rambling. And I know you all are probably uh, tired of hearing my voice, right? <laughs> I talk about different subjects, fun, technical, whatever it is, but that's okay. And uh, so I decided, I said, hey, look, you know, let me bring on somebody onto this podcast that is an expert in one of the subjects that I continuously talk about. Uh, and I wanted to bring on Keith McCormick, okay? Uh, this person right here, I mean, he is an amazing, amazing data science coach, machine learning coach, LinkedIn learning trainer, author and speaker. Uh, when you think about data science, you think Keith, okay? <laughs> so his focus for many years has, has been around statistics and SPSS, but uh, he also has some knowledge in data mining, uh, machine learning, uh, predictive analytics, you name it. Uh, he's, had, uh, he's, he's co-authored six books He's also um, actually created 12 courses. Uh, so without further introduction, I want to introduce you all to uh, Keith McCormick. All right. Hey, Keith, tell them a little bit about yourself. You know, where you're from, you know, how you got into the industry. Sure. And, and thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So the period that, uh, you know, is probably the most interesting for our talk today is when I started doing the SPSS stuff, but a little quick bio before that. So uh, grew up in Rhode Island. Uh, went did undergrad in Massachusetts mm -hmm. and I moved to North Carolina where I still live because I was thinking about doing uh, PhD work in fact mm -hmm. it doesn't come up in conversation all that often I was mm -hmm. since I was interested in, in statistics and psychology I was thinking psychometrics oh so uh, you know like uh, personality tests and standardized mm -hmm. tests and all that uh, all that kind of stuff long, long story on how I got involved in that but anyway I relocated to established state residency down in North Carolina because Chapel Hill had a really good program and what I wanted to do and uh, of course I had to pay the bills too right it takes a couple mm -hmm. of years to establish uh, residency so I was doing a research job just working from the house here I was in the same house years ago mm -hmm. and um, needed to learn some SPSS. I'd already been using it for quite a few years, but I talked to my boss at the time and I said, hey, you know, if you'll pay the training fee and I take care of the expenses, like the travel, any cities that I might have to go to, and if I don't fall behind my work, if I promise it was only a part-time role, if I, if I stay on top of my work and I do all those things, is that like a fair trade? And of course my boss figured, this is, he's gonna pick up the travel you know, expense, don't have to worry about that. It was a, it was just a flat fee. So mm -hmm. that happened. So long story short, I spent a summer really up in DC. I waited until, you know, you get all those uh, college kids leave town and rented a little, you know, rented a little room up there. Mm -hmm. And I took every SPSS class they had and I'd already <laughs> been using it for five or six years, but I squeezed every nickel 
out of that flat rate. They, they it was a very cool thing. They had what they call the training subscription. So you paid, you know, for me out of pocket, it would have been a fair amount of money, but for my boss, it was a great deal. It was maybe two or three grand. Mm -hmm. Nothing like it exists now, and it you know would be more now. And this was these were live classes. But think about it. Then I'm interacting with eight or ten different instructors. They're all amazing, PhD, right. all kinds of different disciplines, and just some of the classes I would take more than once because the subscription let you do that. And I just right. camped out, and I just worked from there. So that's that's interesting because uh, yeah. a lot of people don't understand how important it is to take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you. And that's exactly what you did, right? You just ran with it. You know? Yeah, yeah. It was all in, you know, and uh, to use the the poker metaphor. Yeah, because I figured, well, it's, it's crazy not to, you know. Uh -huh. There was no way my boss was going to pay this another calendar year. So right. now I was still planning on grad school mm -hmm. because, well, you know, we've been we were talking about this earlier. What's more important to someone when they're getting ready to do their dissertation work than? stats yeah yeah <laughs> no and not just the stats phds everybody yep. so it was crazy of me not to leverage that opportunity to the fullest but what happened was i really kind of caught the bug of this just this whole environment of the software training one of the reasons that i want to be a phd is i figured you know i'd uh, have a, a nice house and walk to campus and you know be an academic you know i, I guess i was kind of in love with that whole image of what you know we kind of think being a professor is i just thought that would yeah. be really cool and then i was thinking well you know the software trainer thing is kind of interesting too i mean these trainers you know they'll teach for a week in dc and then they teach for a week in chicago mm -hmm. you know um and i was in my late 20s i was just shy of 30 at the time and i thought well this kind of combination of business travel and i get the teaching so i just became very intrigued so um, they needed someone to teach the basic course. And of course, I was taking these kind of advanced courses, like even some stuff that people don't associate with SPSS, like their coding courses and stuff. And they said, you know, we keep on finding these business folks that don't just don't slow down to cover the theory well enough. And then we bring in these retired professors mm -hmm. who don't teach it applied enough. Said. Mm -hmm the guy was frustrated because he had had like 20, 30 interviews and he wasn't happy with anybody. But then opportunity strikes again, said, how would you feel about doing this? And again, I'd spent weeks hanging out with these folks. I just thought they were a great bunch of people. So I did that instead of grad school. And I did that for 10 years. I mean, yeah. like nonstop for 10 years, thousands of people, hundreds and hundreds of teaching days. Man, man, all, and, over, all over the U.S. And what's your uh, another another nugget that I just took from that or Jim is that you um, what you've been able to do is mix theory with practice, you know, throughout that time. That's such an early stage in your life, because a lot of people don't understand how important that is. Right. I mean, some people you got the PhDs who just go all theory. Right. And then you have the people who are going all practice right they're hands-on like crazy but they don't have the theory they're not forward thinking they're not thought leaders and if you can blend the two right it's what you have done you know at an early age that's key that's so key right there you know yeah no that's that's so true and i really thought that there would be this glass ceiling above me that without the phd I wasn't going to be able to do serious work in that area because almost all my colleagues had a PhD. But again, I started out teaching 
even though I had several years of experience, I was I was limited to the courses that um, I felt and they felt I should be teaching. Mm-hmm. And you know, the years start to melt away. You know, next thing you know, I've been mm-hmm. doing this four or five years, and they'll say, "Hey, you know, I remember one of the courses that was a tough prep for me was the time series econometrics course." I mean, oh, that's, man. that's kind of an intense stuff, right? <laughs> but after three or four years of teaching this stuff every day. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I think I'm ready. Let me let me sit in one more time because I had taken it, you know, years before. But mm-hmm. that was the kind of thing you can imagine. I was up all night, you know, oh, reading man. the next day, double checking. That was really intense material. But again, three, four years of every day teaching this stuff, I was absorbing a lot of stuff and I eventually was ready. And then, you know, once that kind of started, I got more and more brave. So you know, the environment is kind of hard to explain in the sense that no one would do it this way anymore with the online options that we have. And this mm-hmm. was in the late 90s. I'm in an early 50s. I'm not you know, like an 80-year-old man, you know. Mm-hmm. This wasn't that long ago, but the landscape has completely and utterly changed because there were 30 or more short courses. And when I mean a short course, I don't mean an hour. I mean they were two or three days. Wow. So <laughs> we're talking about about 50 or 60 business days of material. Mm-hmm. So even if you took class every day for 10 weeks, you still weren't covering all of it because you've got three days on just regression. You have two days on just analysis of variance. Yeah. You have three days on just econometrics. You have two days on just marketing segmentation. So it was a powerful experience, you know, so looking back, um, I would have felt like a jerk if I phrased it this way back then, because I didn't have an advanced degree and I was somewhat sensitive to the fact that I didn't, because I thought again, that would be job opportunities that where I just wouldn't be a candidate. But Mm -hmm. looking back after, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 hours, literally in that Mm -hmm. classroom environment, I definitely got the equivalent of a master's, you know, by just soaking up the same oxygen as you know all of my colleagues and they were just absolutely top-notch folks yeah because they, they say that it takes about ten thousand hours to really know what you're trying to accomplish or what you're trying to know you know to be that expert in it you know and you have to spend that amount of time and you've been able to do it in a more of a structured environment which was good you know because in, instead of you having to you know off, on go on your own and Try to figure out what should I study? Should I study this? Should I study that? You know, who should I talk to? It was right there for you, and you just took it. You know, took advantage of it, and that's Absolutely. key. And that that uh, uh, that actually is uh, something that you know I took some notes on just then because yeah. um, you know so many people try to spread themselves thin and try to understand so many different things within data science, right? Like you got SPSS, you got R, you got all these different programming languages you can you learn. You can do you can do statistics. You can do, like instead of just just focusing in on something and being great at it, you know, seems like it's 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 a better route to go, and then you'll learn other things along the way as well. Um, well, it was it was a powerful experience. It really was, and I remember when Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, you know, the famous ten thousand yeah. hours, has been around mm-hmm. for a while, but he's the one that made it famous. And um, you know, there's another saying that's relevant here of the you know you don't really know it until you try to teach it, you know, kind of a mm-hmm. thing. So through that experience, after about eight or nine years, it took, you know, it took that long because I remember when the Gladwell book came out and everybody was talking about the 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. That, you know, just about a decade into my training career, 
I had exceeded 10,000 teaching hours. Oh. So that would have been on top of the five or six years of experience I had before I got the gig. And, and then that story of the summer that I spent, you know, taking every class I could, you know. Um, so then that's when it really sunk in. So, you know, there are courses because, you know, everybody had their favorites. So the regression course was one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many thousands of people I taught that three-day course to, but it was thousands. And that face-to-face -face in the classroom, taking their questions, having lunch with them and stuff like that, that's, a, that's an intense experience. So um, looking back, I think they were kind of fortunate, the attendees, and I was attendees in some of this too, because it was a really immersive, powerful experience. But boy, I learned so much too. You'd figure you teach it 10 times, there's nothing left to, you know, to lose. Oh, funny experience. I remember, um, do you know, uh, you know, I'm sure, I bet you've heard the name, John Tukey, you know, the famous he died. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so check this out. This is really remarkable. Uh -huh. So um, it's about what the second year of my training career. So I was starting to teach more middle level courses. I, I don't think I was teaching the econometrics course at that point, but I was definitely teaching the regression course. Mm -hmm. And um, I was feeling pretty confident, but you never know. You'll have an experience where you doubt you know, even if you taught it a dozen times, you kind of start to, you know, you just, you'll have this experience that makes you doubt things. Yeah, so yeah. this guy came up to me during the break and said, Keith, you know, I'm joining your class. I was John Tukey's grad student at Princeton. Oh, man. Nice. <laughs> you know, um, but anyway, what we talked about was similar to the, what came up before, you know, is that you can be too applied, you can be mm -hmm. too theoretical, or you can strike it right down the middle. And, and that that was the compliment that he gave me. And that really gave me a tremendous amount of confidence because you can imagine the brief panic when this guy walks up and introduced himself in the way that he did. I mean, uh, you know, he was an older guy at the time, as you can imagine, because when would Tukey have been taking on grad students? In the 70s or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the, that's awesome. Oh, man, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, to get a, so to get a compliment, from them was uh, I was relieved it wasn't the reverse. Can you imagine if I would have oh, been shattered? Yeah, you'd have been your career <laughs> been over. <laughs> I wouldn't been able to get out of bed the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things you know when when looking at um, your 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 story um, and your focus in on SPSS, right? I I I mean, just recently, I I literally right before we got on this podcast, I was looking at a social media post, right, from a friend that I know in the UK, and they were saying, hey, what's the difference between R and SPSS, right? That's all they do, right? <laughs> everybody that I follow on social media, right, that's involved with SPSS or R, they're always competing or comparing the two. And uh, what I've kind of learned, and, and, and I'm only able to speak, I'm able to speak more on R, but from an SPSS standpoint, I'm learning more and more because as I as we talked a little bit before, I'm actually uh, in, in my quantitative uh, research course that I have right now, uh, that's one of the tools that they said they want us to use, right? That was one of one of like three or four. And because we, have, we already started using SPSS, I said, hey, look, I'm just gonna use that. You have the free subscription through, through, uh, through, through my program and all that good stuff. Um, but, but the more and more, I research it. I understand that R is 
R and SPSS are two industry-leading technologies for statistics, for statistics, right? For statistical data analysis. So I get it. Um, and I'm actually starting to realize that SPSS is probably the it's, it seems like R is the preferred option for an object-oriented programmer, right? Or somebody that just only that does programming, they come from that programming background. But from an industry standpoint, I actually would recommend now SPSS, you know? And and so I don't know your thoughts on it. I know you said you had a little bit of R, you had a little bit, of, you had more SPSS, of course, being in the community. Uh, but, but do you see that there's this competitive nature and then um, outside of that, you know, what do you see as some of the great benefits of SPSS versus R? Well, you know, it's a it's a big topic, and in, in uh, you know the the part of R that um, I like the most is ggplot2, mm -hmm. um, which some people will have heard of. So I'll, I'll comment more on that in a minute. But I want to briefly talk about something that a lot of um, folks listening might not be familiar with. And that is when, when Windows 95 came out, um, that's really when SPSS, you know, as like a Windows-based graphical user interface really took off. It had, it had been doing that beforehand, but that's when, that's when you started to have people like pouring into classes, like the classes that I would describe. Mm -hmm. I started training the winter of 97, 98, so not long after this. And, you know, we'd even have people in class that were kind of getting used to a mouse and everything. I mean, it was just a very different time than it is now. It's kind of hard to remember. But at, the reason I bring this up is at the time, there was a little bit of this civil war going on between within the SPSS community between SPSS users that used only the menus mm. SPSS users that were coders. And mm. that's the part that people forget about, right, is that SPSS came out in 68. There was no Windows. Yeah. There was, there was no Mac in 68. Happens to be my birth year, actually. So I, <laughs> I, I, I always remember without thinking how, how old SPSS is. It came, out, it came out a long time ago, more than 50 years ago. So, um, and the reason there was a bit of a civil war going on between these two groups is that the coders within the SPSS community said, oh, they're like, they're using it as a crutch. You know, they're taking like a shortcut. They must not know um, what they're doing, you know, because they, they need... They need the menu. They need this yeah. extra help. And I think, you know, because I lived through that and that went on for years and people would be passionate about it. And you could tell like the, the coders and the graphic user interface folks literally wouldn't have lunch together. Oh man, it was that bad. <laughs> once, they, once they introduced each other and, you know, they kind of got the vibe from each other and stuff, right? They wouldn't have known that when they walked in because you can't see it, you know, uh -huh. but they would get talking and say, oh, yeah, I relate so much more to this other coder or I relate so much. There was definitely tension there. And there was definitely right. the feeling of, you know, the coders are like in the weeds. And, you know, so I've been through this before is my point. Mm -hmm. So um, and that's what I'll sometimes the way that coders will sometimes describe people that, that, you know, that use a graphical user interface is, oh, they must be incompetent, you know, because they, <laughs> they need some kind of a crutch, you know. Yeah. So um, so that experience informs you know the way that i think about it, because i've seen people get into little silly fights over this so here's here's my two cents on it okay the machine learning person in me appreciates the fact that you need to have some coding skills or and or a coder's mentality to deploy a model 
And I'm yeah. passionate about that. I definitely think that you can't get return on investment. In fact, uh, you mentioned LinkedIn Learning. One of the courses I'm going to do this year is a course specifically on return on investment in predictive analytics. That's the topic of the whole course. Oh, it's that is sure a good topic. Predictive analytics. I'm really excited. That's what they about want that. from a business standpoint. That's what they want. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny how it happened because um, I had one lecture on it. It was you know just two or three minutes. You know how these video things are. You got to kind of keep it mm -hmm. moving. You know, so I had just three minutes on this, and somebody put in the comments that I love this course. I especially love this lecture. You could do a whole course on it. Mm -hmm. I was blown away by that comment because I said, you know, I said that's true, and I I couldn't help myself. I started grabbed a piece of paper and I outlined if I did have like an hour and fifteen minutes, what I would say. And I proposed it and, you know, they're going to do it. So that side of me, the I want to be business oriented. I want to be applied. I want to achieve return on investment. I totally get why coding is important. However, there's two distinct mission statements when you're doing um, data science type stuff. OK, and that is sometimes your the whole purpose of the project is to deploy a model. But as you know, Sometimes the per more like dissertation work. Sometimes what you're doing is not a deployed model, but a report of some kind. Mm -hmm. So think about all the folks that I used to see in um, my classes in Arlington, Virginia, in the DC office. Obviously, with a government spin, very much a government spin on somebody that would work at, um, you know, the Department of Labor. I remember that I had a, a CIA guy in class, and it, you know, it sounds funny, like he, he wasn't a he wasn't why he wasn't the stereotypical <laughs> a lot of folks will be familiar with uh, particularly uh, international travelers will be familiar with the cia fact books mm -hmm. you know with the population of the country it's the demographic yeah. breakdown all those kinds of things stuff, yeah. it's fantastic to have those cia fact books around and he was on that staff he would write the cia fact books so he didn't have to conceal you know he actually had like cia on his business card in other words which most people mm -hmm. don't usually they're you know, they, yeah, they're, they're incognito. They're <laughs> yeah. You know, so somebody like that or somebody that would be at the department of labor or all these various things, right? A mm -hmm. lot of people are doing analyses so they can put out some kind of annual statistical report or something like that. Right. 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 Why? Now, he, here's where the coders would come in. They would say, oh, but I don't care if it's a report or not. You need to have a paper trail of how you got there. And I understand that logic too. Mm -hmm. But that's that concern is built around a myth mm -hmm. that if someone's using a graphical user interface that there's no paper trail. They're thinking more of something like Excel. And I'm not trying to slam Excel here, but Excel, what's your deliverable? is the spreadsheet itself exactly there's really yeah. no log unless you're doing macros or something there's no way that you get the next month's data and everything's automatic unless you're an excel power user and you're doing macro kind of stuff mm -hmm. but that paper trail is inherent to spss um you know uh, folks that only have passing familiarity with it maybe they've heard the name but never used it don't perhaps don't know that right next to the okay button there's always a paste button and what that does is turns all of your clicks into code mm. and mm. sends it to a log file where you can reproduce the work and where you can show the work to another human as well and say, here's how I got there step by step. So this, I have to, I have to code because I have to document. That's built around a myth. Yeah. And the better the good stats packages leave that paper trail. So if you're gonna say that you have to deploy the model, frankly, that that issue is a bit of mythology too, because SPSS yeah. could do that quite readily.
but but that that that's where someone's really got my attention if i say hey i want to i don't i'm not just building this model to learn something i'm building this model to put it into production yeah i'm more won over on the coding argument and its benefits yeah. but if they're you know one of these folks at the department of labor and they're trying to crunch some numbers to include in a report i, I just don't see any reason why they have to be um you know a coder right particularly if there's that paper trail which there is yeah and that, oh, you you make an amazing point you know several points but the, the the no code you know we talked about it right you know a lot of tools that are coming out now and they're they're removing that that you must code you know uh, a feature from there you know they're, yeah. they're really focusing in on trying to I mean what's the ultimate goal the ultimate goal is bringing value to the customer and and you want to be able to uh, have the I mean well from a coders perspective depending on what their goal is you know they, they may have they may have underlying goals you know outside of it but 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 mostly when you're working in an enterprise environment or working for an organization at the end of the day the C-level execs right they don't they don't care how you derive this and what you do. I mean, bring me some business value and so that I can make the decision at the end of the day. I don't care about all the, the, the stuff in the background that you're doing, right? Even though we care about it, right? Because we're putting in all these hours and things like that. But, um, but, but if you could get to that same end goal, and you could remove the coder part. Maybe it's maybe it's the fact that, um, or maybe they're feeling like they're threatened, right? The coder side of things is a threat. Uh, when you're losing that aspect, they're losing their job. You know, do you think that that's something that plays I, a part? I, um, I encounter I encountered that on a um, on a gig once it was it was a tense it was a tense gig it wasn't um, it wasn't a lot of fun because what it was is they had one coder now again this is um people associate coding with r and python but mm -hmm. you have spss and sas coders too mm -hmm. in this particular on this particular gig that got a little tense it was a sas coder and what they were doing is they wanted me to come in to teach everybody how to use spss in the menus because they said, what's happened is we're crippled when this employee is, you know, was out sick or something. Mm -hmm. And we, we live in fear, you know, that she would leave the company or something like that, right? Because mm -hmm. the code wasn't terribly well documented, right? And, the, and the, 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 team, the team lead felt a prisoner of this employee's code, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't understand it. We can't reproduce it. And, of course this isn't a, a praiseworthy thing to purposely make your your code that way right obviously right. somebody can wrote good sas code but there was a certain motivation i think to purposely make this sas code hard to read and right. she explicitly said that she said if, well if you all learn how to do this what happens to me right <laughs> i feel like the job. recognizing the the sleepless nights you know that her boss was was going through i mean you know mm -hmm. you're on a team because you should be you know working together so yeah there's i think there's i think there's some of that certainly but um let me revisit it from a different angle, which is why can the menus sometimes be a really big help? Well, something that I think sometimes we forget about coding. And again, I've, I've already said what I like about the, the coding, which is when you go to put stuff into production, you, you, that's going to be an important thing to do. But mm -hmm. you can generate the, the code from the menus, as I've explained. And there's something out about the menus that I find very powerful. Coders that are being honest will admit the following, and that is you can write really stripped down, streamlined code 
that's sometimes just a couple of lines, you know, and you get your model or you get your report, but it's really, really just stripped down and it's really just a few words. So mm -hmm. it's not like coding is incredibly difficult. And a lot of times people are frankly just copying and pasting. Hey, don't even know, right, you know what no drone stuff. <laughs> but, but here's where I get a little freaked out because I remember those thousands of hours I spent walking people through the menus. Mm -hmm. Is that if you're looking at the screen and you see 20 options, check boxes, drop down menus, and so on, and there's one that you don't understand, you might not deal with it right away, but that is going to haunt you. You're mm -hmm. gonna wonder what is that button that I don't understand, and eventually mm -hmm. you're gonna look the darn thing up, okay? Oh. But when the code is stripped down like that, you can't see those options because what you're basically doing is you're telling the computer is I want to predict this variable with those variables, but otherwise give me nothing but defaults. Oh. You're not really making a conscious decision okay. of what you want. You're basically just going for give me the package deal, you know, right. be like. Um, be like going to buy a car and they tell you about all the different, you know, complicated options packages they have, but they say, Hey, if you, if you want the car this week, you're gonna have to go with a standard, you're gonna have to go with a standard package because everything else is a special order. And you say, Oh, I want the car right away. So I'll go with a standard package. That's basically what's happening when you write two lines of code, you're saying, give me, I don't know what I'm getting, but just give yeah. me the standard package, right? No one brings that up. And I think it's unfortunate because Again, I've been through this feud between these two groups where the coders were forever telling the folks that use the menus that they were incompetent. Mm -hmm. Because if they were serious about this as a career, they'd go out and learn some code. Yeah. And I used to get so impatient with that argument, not because I didn't recognize the value of the code, but because I thought it was an unfair critique. The folks yeah. that are using the menus have to learn their stuff. So that brings us to today. So I, I've seen this going on for years. But now we're having the fight all over again in this argument for low code or no code or right. auto ML. That's a little bit different because that's more like what the coders were accusing the menu users of the 90s of doing, which is, hey, I just press the button. And it's like magic. I just press the oh, magic right, button. And I, get right. the <laughs> I don't think that's a fair characterization of what we were. I mean, why would we have had? 50 or 60 days of training, if that's all we were doing, just pressing the magic button. Right, right. But sometimes I think these days people are proposing that you get the easy button. Yeah. And oh, then we get into the future yeah. work issues, you know, right, that I right. know that we'll talk about eventually as well, right? So I think that's an unfair critique of what menus used to be, but I don't know if it's an unfair critique of what menus will become. If it's a wizard, and if it's using AI behind the scenes to make the decisions for you, you know, mm -hmm. almost like autocomplete when you're typing, mm -hmm. you know, emails sometimes you, you yeah, type yeah, words and, it. The <laughs> yeah. and usually I don't want the sentence it gives me, but still it's impressive, you mm -hmm. know? And when machine learning gets to that stage, now we've got to watch out because if the menus are a wizard, that's very different than what I was describing, whereas the human is selecting the options they want and the options are in front of them where they can see it and they're making sometimes some subtle and tough decisions about what they want. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, you're, you're right. They actually have to understand the decisions that they're making, you know, and not just click, click, click. Um, and now that you broke it down like that, actually have a 
totally different, um, you know, perspective and respect for SPSS and and the menu-driven aspect of things. I mean, think about it. Even in um, going back to Windows, right? They compare Windows versus Linux. They're like, oh, I'm, you know, I like the Linux. I like the command line, you know. But then Windows, you have to know what you're doing if you're really good at what you're doing with Windows, right? And so, uh, it, it, you know, you shouldn't, you should not shoot down uh, somebody else's method or or the other tool just because you may be more familiar with yours, you know, and, and, and so what you, what you just pointed out was, Oh, that was, that was really good. <laughs> yeah, that was really good because um, really understanding every bit of the menu. You're right. It's like the, uh, I don't know if you read the book is a book called the nudge theory. And, um, and with that book, it's kind of like nudging you just saying, hey, look, you know, uh, um, like for me, I feel like that looking at the menu to drop down menus and realizing that, it's a pain because you're skipping past this and you're not understanding what it really means because it could actually benefit you and what you're trying to do. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would love to, I know that I know for me, I would continue to look that up and try to figure out what that is, you know, after a while, because it's nudging me. It's like right there saying, look, you know, you keep passing me, you know, maybe that's why, you know, your day, <laughs> your, your results are coming out this way. <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that book but nudge is exactly the word because there'll be a little checkbox you know when you do regression for instance that says vif you know it's kind of like if you want vif check this box mm -hmm. you go, well, what the heck is vif and then you look up and realize that vif is variance inflation factor and you go mm -hmm. well what the heck is variance inflation factor mm -hmm. right and then you realize that it's connected to multicollinearity <laughs> and then you go oh well i've heard that word but what does vif have to do yeah. with that you know Next thing you know, it, two hours have melted away, and you just learned something really important about right. checking for the presence of multicollinearity in your regression. And right. I, I don't think, um, well, I mean, all the R users, you know, that are listening can kind of just do a, you know, a self-check. Are you familiar with Durbin-Watson, mm -hmm. Tolerance, VIF? Have yeah, you ever you know. come up in conversation? No. For some listening, I'm sure the answer might be yes, but for a bunch, I bet the answer is no. Yep. And there's been nothing about that process of learning those commands and generating those results that has nudged them. I'm going to borrow mm -hmm. that word because it's so perfect. That's nudged them to look this stuff up. So they might go five years without looking it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. And I know that would be me. You know, so I, you may, by the end of this, you may switch me over to be a, 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 an SPSS uh, focused individual, you know. Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion with your host, Dapper Data.